This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you fill out your ballot this fall, you might want to keep Dion Warwick in mind. Yes, deja vu, because many of the questions you may vote on this fall are extensions of big debates Coloradans have had for years. Signature gatherers are at grocery stores, they're on street corners helping various campaigns qualify for the ballot. And we're going to get a breakdown from Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. So $22 million has been raised by these various campaigns as of the end of May. Uh, To be clear, we're focusing on issues here, not candidates. Indeed. And uh, these issues are really drawing some big money players. Of that $22 million, more than $6.5 million has been raised by the oil and gas industry to fight off issues that would increase local control over their operations. Uh, The state's biggest grocery stores have collected almost $5 million for a possible fight over beer and wine sales. And the big insurance companies and healthcare providers are raising a war chest to oppose a measure that would make Colorado the first state in the country with universal health care. Some brass tacks here. How many signatures do these campaigns need to qualify for the ballot? About 98,000. And in a lot of the cases, the deadline for that is August 8th. There are two measures already on the ballot, though, that we're, we're sure to vote on, right? That's right. Uh, one of these was referred to the ballot by the legislature. Um, the Colorado Constitution has a provision that bans slavery with one exception when it is used as punishment for people convicted of crimes. This proposal takes away that exception and bans slavery outright. And the other? The other proposal would create a universal health care system for Colorado. It's called Colorado Care. And to a proposal you've already hinted at, allowing the sale of full-strength beer and wine in grocery stores. Uh, Groceries say that's what customers want. These smaller liquor stores say the competition will put many of them out of business. Right now, the law says that chains like Safeway or King Supers can sell full-strength beer and wine at only one store in the state. Otherwise, they're limited to 3.2 beer. Uh, The two sides fought really hard over this in the legislature. Yeah, and there was a a compromise bill passed, or at least one touted as a compromise. Yeah, the compromise would phase in the sales of full-strength wine and beer over the next 20 years to a maximum of 20 licenses. So 20 licenses within a chain. That's right. But there still may be a ballot fight, even though the legislature moved. Right. Governor Hickenlooper hasn't even said yet whether he's going to sign the bill. And two of the biggest grocery chains, King Supers and Safeway, have big problems with it. And they might float their own ballot proposal, right? They are now collecting signatures for a measure that would allow them to sell full-strength beer and wine with an unlimited number of licenses starting in July of 2017. But that's not a surefire thing, Michelle? Given the fact that Governor Hickenlooper hasn't made a decision yet, they say they're keeping their options open and they won't decide until after he does. Got it. At the heart of this argument for the liquor stores is jobs, right? That's right. I spoke with Bruce Deerking, who owns Hazel Beverage World in Boulder. Uh, He's a leader of the opposition to the grocery store proposal. He says Colorado's liquor stores are mostly small, family-owned businesses. It can be certainly a livable income. 
Um, it's not the kind of business where people are, you know, becoming multimillionaires, but um, it's certainly a much better living than if those people are put out of business and they're out on the street applying for hourly jobs at the grocery chains, for example. How do the grocery stores respond? They reject the idea that this will crush the liquor stores. They say groceries sell beer and wine in other states, and the liquor stores do just fine. And they point to a neighborhood in Denver where there are three food stores that are allowed to sell wine and beer, and they say beer and liquor stores are doing fine there, too. In that specific neighborhood. So what's the deadline for the governor to sign or veto the bill? The governor has until June 10th. Another issue that's been part of the public debate for a long time and that is emerging once again or could on the ballot is fracking, hydraulic fracturing, to extract oil and natural gas. Several proposals in that regard, Michelle. Yeah, two in particular that seem to be getting most of the attention. Uh, Both of those are sponsored by a group called CREED. That's Coloradans Resisting Extreme Energy Development. The first of these would create a buffer zone of 2,500 feet between new oil and gas development and occupied buildings or other places they describe as areas of special concern. That could be a public drinking water source, a lake, a public park, or open space. And the second proposal? The second proposal would give local governments much greater power to regulate oil and gas development. Uh, They could prohibit oil and gas activity in their boundaries or impose moratoriums or other limits. But previously, these local limits have not fared well in the courts. So what's the plan of attack? So if these measures pass, they would be constitutional amendments and they would supersede previous court decisions. I see. Uh, Who is this anti-fracking group Creed up against? So it's a who's who, really, of Colorado's major oil and gas companies. Uh, The group is called Protecting Colorado's Environment, Economy, and Energy Independence. And they've raised more than $6.5 million this election cycle. I would point out that they don't even have an initiative of their own on the ballot. They've built this money up to defend themselves against the anti-fracking measures. And how much money does the anti-fracking side have? Uh, as of May 31st, they'd raised about $86,000. 86000 versus the $6.5 million that the industry has stockpiled. It's going to be an interesting fight here. Other big issues we may see on the ballot? Several of them deal with elections themselves. Some of the state's most prominent government and business leaders got together last year. They created a group called Building a Better Colorado to look at how Colorado's government might work better. Out of that came proposals to create a Colorado presidential primary and to allow unaffiliated voters to vote in state Democratic and Republican primaries. And so you may see signature gatherers for those. Any other proposals come out of that group that are potentially headed for the ballot? Yes. uh, One would make it harder to change Colorado's constitution. So instead of a 50 percent vote of the public to pass a constitutional amendment, it would take 55 percent. And the idea here is to make it harder to amend the Constitution, I gather, because of some of the budgetary conflicts that have arisen from this. They say putting something in the Constitution is like putting it in cement. You can't change it easily. And when you get conflicting budgetary amendments, it takes away the legislature's flexibility to operate, essentially. Uh, Opposition to this idea? The argument essentially is that money drives politics and that this is going to make it harder for smaller grassroots groups to pass constitutional amendments. 
I'll add here that some of the folks in this group have also brought another issue to the table. It's about the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, TABOR, it's called, which limits government spending and taxes in Colorado. It requires tax refunds when those limits are exceeded. Uh, The measure that's been proposed would be a TABOR timeout. The refunds would be suspended for a decade. So we've talked about some big themes here, in some cases, multiple proposed ballot issues on each side of the argument. What other types of questions might we be looking at in November? There's an end-of-life measure that's circulating that would create a right for an adult patient who is dying and who is mentally competent to have help from a medical professional to end his or her life. A patient would have to be able to self-administer whatever the prescription was Yeah, for and this, that. Is, this is something the legislature has also debated. That's right. There's also a bill to raise the state's minimum wage from $8.31 an hour to $9.30 an hour, and then it would be increased up to $12 by 2020. Again, those are still in the signature gathering process, and it'll be a bit before we know which issues actually make it to the ballot. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Michelle Fulcher is a Colorado Matters producer, and the list of circulating petitions is long. It also includes a proposal to raise state tobacco taxes to pay for all sorts of things, mostly related to health care and research. Another would require local governments to divest themselves from companies that do business in Iran. Coming up, a man whose job is to collect your signature for proposed ballot measures. He has turned this into something of a career. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Before the break, we heard about some of the many petitions circulating ahead of the November election. Now let's meet a man who boldly asks for your signature. Sir, do you vote in Colorado? Yes. Please come here. Should there be a presidential primary in the state of Colorado and independents could vote? That's this petition and just gets it on the ballot. That is Carlo Scarcella of Lakewood. He gathers signatures for a whole host of issues and candidates. And Carlo, welcome to the program. Thank you, War. Uh, it's Ryan. Ryan. That's okay. It happens all the time. You're collecting uh, signatures for six different campaigns. Um, do you have to believe in a campaign to collect signatures for Not them? really. You you have to stay impartial. But once you uh, get into the, the, the idea of it, it's very easy. Yeah. And you become passionate about them or what? Um, getting the signatures and explaining them, I am passionate about. You were a teacher in a former life, and uh, I suppose that there is probably something that feels like teaching about this. Certainly, and it's done over and over and over again. And when people start uh, signing, I offer them a perk. With so many signatures, would you like to hear a good joke about Donald Trump? All right. Uh, And does that work as a lure? It did work. And people laugh. So I like to leave them laughing. Okay. Uh, Because I'm a little afraid of balance, I'm not going to have you tell the Donald Trump (laughs) joke. Um, How how are you paid in in a job like this? It's paid... Bi-weekly, if you want, or weekly, and it's it's done by check. Okay, and who's who's your employer in these? I'd rather not talk about that right now, but it uh, it isn't really lucrative in California, for example. It is five dollars a signature on average, Uh, but here a dollar a signature is usual, and sometimes with a candidate, it can go up to five. Hmm. So you are paid per signature? Yes. Okay. And is this uh, like a full-time job or just – I mean it's obviously seasonal work but it 
it wouldn't pay for very much of our full time. For me, it's seasonal. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a lot of people, they go state to state on various campaigns and uh, work around, around the, the calendar. Have you perfected how you approach people? Um, I think so. It's pretty much, do you vote in Colorado, is the initial uh, phrase. Because if they do not, they'll tell me right away. If they do, I may say uh, something that might be on the ballot that they will appeal to them. In this case, I'm using the presidential primary because there are so many disenfranchised uh, unaffiliates that they're everywhere. And they're, they're the largest group in Colorado. So that really grabs their interest. This is on the tail of some uh, displeasing to many caucuses in Colorado. To say the least. Do people have tactics to avoid you? I wonder if they get uh, on their yes, do they, they get on their cell phones and pretend they're talking to someone. No, what they'll do is they will not say anything, not make eye contact. And Megan Verlee was with me uh, at the DMV, and she was noticing that, and she made the same comment. Fifty percent will not. Uh, uh, if they say they vote or not or mumble it, they won't stop. And 10% won't make eye contact at all or say anything. And just ignore you totally. Correct. You, you don't take that personally. No. Okay. Megan Verlee is our reporter. She was out there with you. So you were at the DMV. Where's the best place to gather signatures? Uh, where people are constantly uh, uh, moving past you and uh, different people. Libraries are great, but you run out of uh, library, uh, library uh, goers. Library in that, patrons. In that area. All right. And are is, are there turf wars among signature gatherers? Yeah, he who's there first gets the turf. Okay. But um, I, I remember petitioning for the legalization of marijuana at Red Rocks. And I was lucky to be able to do that 10 times when I found out all these people said that they would move to Colorado if we legalized it. I voted against it. You wound up voting against it. I did. I see. And Red Rock seems a good place to be gathering signatures about pot use. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I suppose in some ways you match the location of, of uh, where you gather signatures to the issue. You know, where would you find people sympathetic to the cause? Uh, there are Republican areas and Democratic areas. I recently got Jack Graham on the ballot for the Republicans' uh, for petition. And uh, there are certain areas that are more Republican than Democrat. Mm. Um, Jefferson County has pockets more northerly than southerly. And then Colorado Springs is is a a hotbed of Republicans there, too. Yeah. So you've sort of mapped this out in your head. How did you get into this gathering signatures? And is it is it a, a job you'd recommend to others? I would. If you have time and anybody who wants to, I have an uh, email address that uh, they can find by calling NPR. Okay. Uh, we'll we'll post that maybe to our, our website if you'd like to be contacted, sure. CPR.org. And how did you get into this? Uh, I talked to a petitioner and I said, well, this pays, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, he told me what he was getting and I said, I want to do it myself. And I was introduced by uh, this gentleman to Scott Lamb, uh, the ex-governor of Colorado's son. He had a petitioning company at the time. And I began petitioning. What is a good day in terms of numbers of signatures gathered? Good day would be 300. 
300 signatures? Yes. Okay. But it depends on how many petitions you have and what price. In California, there's absolute access to every supermarket, every place. It's perfect. I wish the governor would grant that because one of the amendment, the uh, petitions he wants on the ballot is to limit the amount of uh, amendments that go onto our constitution, but we don't have access. And now they are there's there could very well be a lawsuit against King Supers. Scott Lamb was telling me that their uh, petition they're uh, moving ahead with a with one that sues them for not giving us access. So there are places where you can't be? That's right. And during the marijuana initiative, Safeway shut us down completely. They did not want to be associated with the uh, legalization of marijuana. Hmm. Uh, do you run into people who aren't registered to vote? I mean, do you find yourself actually getting people involved in the democratic process? I do. And at the DMV, there is a form you can fill out that's sitting on the counter as you walk in so they can easily sign it. And they do. Ah, so there's uh, maybe two reasons to be at the DMV. It's a, ah. a, a captive audience and then you can get them to register and then I suppose what? Sign. And then uh, give it to the uh, the. Uh, employee in the uh, DMV, and they will be considered registered. Signature gathering has been in the news this election cycle, with Republican Senate candidate John Kaiser at one point being dropped from the ballot because a number of signatures couldn't be verified, some signatures even from dead people. How surprised were you by some of that Extremely. It's dismal. casts a bad shadow over the the integrity of the uh, entire process. Do you think being paid per signature gives people a motivation to cheat? Mm, No, I don't think so. In fact, uh, in case you didn't know, the legislature passed a law in uh, 1909 that Scott Lamb and Albie Hearst took to federal court because it said they had to be paid by the hour. Right. Basically, it said you couldn't be paid per signature, but the court overruled that. And now Indeed, you can. You know, I think that a theme of this election, Carlo, is that people are frustrated, dissatisfied. Do you see that on the streets? This Absolutely. Election? Especially with the Republican uh, 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 Jack Graham uh, petition. They came to me with their troubles. They were confused, upset, abandoned by their own party, no candidate uh, fit the bill, and some switched to the Republic, the uh, Democrats, and some swore they would never vote for Trump. And these are Republicans. Thank you for being with us and sharing this life of yours. You're very welcome. Carlo Scarcella of Lakewood, literally the man on the street in Colorado politics. Just ahead, when Muhammad Ali fought a Denver Bronco, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It was 1979. Muhammad Ali wasn't floating like a butterfly, nor was he stinging like a bee. In fact, he was telling the world he'd retired. But when a Denver Bronco football player suggested a boxing match at Mile High Stadium, Ali agreed. He didn't take the fight with Lyle Alzado very seriously, though. This is from a pre-fight news conference on NBC. I have enough to whip any football player in the world. In the ring, there's no football player. It took me 25 years to throw a left jab to learn how to dance, to move, to face himself. Ain't no man come out of football and jump into my field now and master Muhammad Ali. No, man. 
Denver Post sports writer Terry Fry covered the hype before and after the fight that day. He is with us by phone as the world remembers Muhammad Ali, who died Friday at age 74. Terry, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So set the scene for us the day of this exhibition matchup. What was it like? The atmosphere was kind of gloomy in the sense that it was it had been envisioned to be a big box office draw at Mile High Stadium. And Lyle Alzada, the Broncos football player, had literally mortgaged his home and had hoped to gain contract leverage in, in talks with the Broncos over a new contract. And so it was... It was uh, depressing in the sense that it was very obvious it was not going to meet Lyle Alzado's goals for the fight. But I think the people who showed up, there were about 15,000, there was a sense of anticipation as long as they had a realistic outlook on what they were going to see. They were going to see an over-the-hill icon fighter going against a Denver Bronco, and there was kind of a, a subtle agreement that they wouldn't go all out and try to hit each other in the head, those kinds of things. Mm. But the atmosphere was of, if you had the correct attitude about it, this is going to be a fun way to see Muhammad Ali in a boxing ring. But for uh, Lyle Alzado, as you said, this was, um, uh, well, I guess an effort to shore up his, his career and his financial future. Well, he had been a Golden Gloves fighter previously. He grew up in New York, and uh, there had been talk that maybe he would leverage this possibility of going into boxing as a leverage in his contract negotiations with the Broncos. So that's what he was doing it for. And the promotion before the fight was all based on those premises. And I think they fouled up the promotion because they tried to treat it as a serious boxing match instead of the idea, hey, come out, have fun, and Mile High Stadium and see the the uh, three-time world champion who had allegedly retired. He did come back and fight twice more, but at that point, he was supposed to have been retired. I wonder why Muhammad Ali would have agreed to this. I mean, especially if he had said he was retired, you know? He, he, he missed the spotlight to an extent, but he also was paid a significant amount of money based on the premise that they believed it was going to be a huge box office draw in an outdoor football stadium going against the Denver Bronco. They turned out to to be calculating wrong, but Muhammad Ali was paid rather handsomely, and it was viewed as kind of a... an afternoon where he broke a sweat and and made a lot of money. You know, there there are significant stories that uh, lend credence to the idea that Muhammad Ali was financially troubled in the sense of not taking full advantage of all the money he had made over the years. And, of course, he had that dark period where in the prime of his career he wasn't even able to fight at all. So I think he was very conscious of getting the big paycheck, also stepping back into the spotlight and being a part of what he what they all thought going in was going to be a huge afternoon in Mile High Stadium. Yeah, and I guess which, which wasn't. It was more of a whimper. What was the turnout like? Well, they, they announced 20,000. We were guessing about 15,000. And I guess the... the, the uh, Equivalent examples would be like if you go to the state championship high school football games at, at the former Sports Authority Field, and they have the upstairs, the uh, the balcony is shut off, and in the downstairs, the lower level of the stadium is, is significantly filled, and that was kind of the atmosphere of it. The ring was in one corner of the stadium, and so it was not embarrassingly sparse. It just was not the throng that they had hoped it would be. I guess the other example would be go to a Colorado Outlaws outdoor lacrosse game yeah. at Sports Authority Field, and that, that's kind of the feel it had 
for the size of the crowd. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we're talking about uh, the day in 1979 when Muhammad Ali was in Denver to fight a Denver Bronco, Lyle Alzado. Joining us is uh, longtime Denver Post sports writer Terry Fry. And Terry, uh, did you get to meet Muhammad Ali? Yeah, in the pre-fight coverage, uh, he he came in a couple of times, and I can't, I will not pretend to have sat down and had an intimate conversation with him at that point. But I was part of the the mob, and I did meet him, and I did write down the elevator with him at, at the weigh-in and saw him kind of in action there, promoting the fight. And when the lights came on, he was all action. At that point, he was still the showman, the ultimate showman. So I got to see that in action. And a little bit later, when he came back through Denver and was given an award in a, in a banquet at the Regency Hotel, which is now the uh, Auraria Student Housing. Yeah. I, did, I did meet with him in, a, in his suite, interviewed him briefly, one-on-one. So those are my two encounters with him. What do you remember about that second encounter? Just that he was so soft-spoken, and, and it was a little bit of a replay of the elevator incident, in the sense that he was, he was very soft-spoken, and in a one-on-one conversation at that point, however brief it was, the light didn't come on. He was not the showman. He spoke seriously and briefly about the events at that time. But it, he, it took the light to come on for you to see the showman in him. And it, it was interesting to see the contrast between those two Muhammad Ali's. It's been interesting uh, in just the last few days to look into Colorado boxing history, because long before this fight, Jack Dempsey who was world heavyweight champion from 1919 to 1926, was known as the Manassas Mahler. Um, he came from the town of Manassas, Colorado, in the San Luis Valley. Um, there's a giant mural of Dempsey in downtown Denver, by the way. Um, Ali won the heavyweight championship at age 22 by upsetting a Denver fighter named Sonny Liston. Uh, so there's lots of uh, history to, to explore here. I wonder if you'd leave us with this as we reflect on Muhammad Ali. What what place did he occupy in sports? I think it's hard, perhaps, for those who weren't alive at the time or who were very young at the time to understand um, the space he occupied. Well, the briefly received context, Jack Dempsey at one time, and I have been to Manassas, and I've written about him, and uh, he's in a couple of my books, actually. And he, at one time, was the most famous man on the planet. The heavyweight champion of the world was the most famous man on the planet. No. In that period, and it was the same for Muhammad Ali, but you multiply that by the perfect storm circumstances of what was going on in our country in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and the flashpoint, the cauldron that the country was, and what it, what he represented as kind of the, the front-burner, symbolic guy who refused induction into the U.S. Army, missed three and a half, nearly... Uh, missed uh, 43 months of his career and went through all that, and he was part of the debate of the civil rights movement. So what he was was reflective of his prominence in the cauldron that was the America Post-Civil Rights Act uh, and also uh, the Vietnam War dissent, the discussion, the debate, and the uh, evolution of the country. So he was his celebrity, his popularity involves, in my mind, some perfect storm circumstances, but also his his very, very unique status and very, very unique qualities. You know, and I think the thing that is, I've heard over the last few days is kind of the ongoing debate over whether his refusal to be inducted into the U.S. Army 
in uh, 1967, which was uh, a, was a detriment to his reputation. And I, I understand the people wanting to look at it that way. I'm the son of a World War II veteran, and I understand that kind of thinking. But, you know, Bill Bill Clinton adeptly worked the system, and that's in one of my books, a man I very much admire, but he adeptly worked the system to get out of to quash his induction notice. We all know that mm. younger President Bush worked the system very, very adroitly to stay out of Vietnam. Um, one of the very first stories I ever wrote was about uh, Vietnam veterans against a war leader, a very young guy named John Kerry, who at least had gone before deciding Vietnam was a mistake. So I, I view it, even Muhammad Ali's place in all of this, and in the controversy over his refusal to be inducted in the Army, within all of that context, the flashpoint, the controversy, the uh, overheating motions that was the United States in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Terry, thanks so much. He's with the Denver Post, Colorado Sports Writer of the Year, by the way, and author of many books. Here's Muhammad Ali, actually Cassius Clay at the time, singing Stand By Me from a 1963 album he recorded called I Am the Greatest. When the A small private school in Littleton installed solar panels on its roof. This is something we told you about last year. Since then, Macintosh Academy has experimented with all sorts of energy efficiency projects. It just won a National President's Environmental Youth Award. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine went back for a visit. Macintosh Academy wants to be a smart village. Who's going to tell me what we're doing first? Where are we going? The best way to show me what that looks like is to take a tour. We got some railroad ties just to mark it off. But Seventh grader Cy Crawford shows me a steep hill in the school grounds. Typically, when it rains, water comes pouring down the hill, forming a giant mud pit. But the students are changing that, and they're looking at the practices of the ancient Incas to help them do it. We're going to terrace it off and use their sort of idea to help the water soak into the ground better. The 7th and 8th graders studied the agriculture and water distribution systems of Machu Picchu, cutting steps into the earth increases the amount of space to grow food and ensures a longer growing season for pumpkins, melons, squash, cucumbers, flowers, and sunflowers. Right now, those plants are germinating in the greenhouse and will soon be transferred to the terraces where they will be able to grow fully. There isn't tons of money at the school for projects like this, so students continually have their eye on grants and commercial ideas. Seventh grader Quinn Yates says this past year, they sold the salad greens, herbs, fruits, vegetables, and flowers that they'd grown in the greenhouse. Every other Friday, we would sell our lettuce crop. Quinn says they practiced what's called cut and come again to maximize their crop. Just cut off the top of the lettuce, leaving the plant still alive. Sai says it's like giving the lettuce a buzz cut. And two weeks later, you have another harvest. The kids hope with their terraced landscape, they'll have even more of a harvest next year. And they're not stopping at sustainable agriculture. Okay, do you think we should move on to the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sweating in here. 
we walk over to a recycling bin. Only 17% of glass in Colorado that goes into mainstream recycling is actually recycled. That's because in the bins, glass often gets broken and becomes too expensive to sort out from all the recyclables. Most recycling in the U.S. works like this. But at Macintosh, that problem solved with a glass-only bin. No sorting needed. There is nothing rote about this style of learning. The kids do all the investigating, debate different theories, and come up with their own solutions. We've been noticing since we got the solar panels that we're still drawing a lot of energy from the grid. So eighth grader Delia Gilbert tells me they came up with a how low can you go day. She explains that's why all the lights are off in the school today and appliances are unplugged. Generally we have like microwaves and we'll have heating and air conditioning. Today students are trying not to use the microwave and many of them are wearing light jackets to keep warm on this crisp spring day instead of cranking up the heat. So, did it work? Outside in the bright sun, Cy Crawford pulls up something on a laptop. There's this website that connects with our solar panels, and it shows us how much energy we're using. Quinn jumps in. Today we've used basically none. Because we're all running on the solar panels? In fact, today the school's energy usage is around the same it would be on the weekend or even a vacation day. And the students aren't just looking at cutting their energy usage. They're also investigating the energy efficiency of the school building. Right now I've been working on the water heaters. That's sixth grader Tanner McElravey. As I found this water heater was installed in like 1980, and that makes it ridiculously old. So he's been researching different types of water heaters and is writing up a grant for a new, more efficient water heater. Other students are investigating how different insulation and windows in the school could also improve things. And why stop at this planet? Uh, Would you like to see a hab? Have you read The Martian? I have not. Okay. So in the book, Mark Watney is stranded on Mars. That's the main character of the book. And so we created a Mars unit in science, where we had to create a sustainable community in our classroom. The kids are studying what humans' impact would be on Mars and reflecting on whether humans should colonize the red planet. And is it fair to Mars? And And we We should clean up our own planet before we trash another person's planet or just another planet. That's kind of the conclusion you It's a weighty discussion with no consensus today. As for consensus on how to live sustainably on this planet, Quinn Yates says creating a smart village at Macintosh has taught the students some concrete steps on what they can do. Everyone is realizing that we have this problem, so we're all beginning to work together to try and create a better world. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Coming up, theater that is meant to be discombobulating. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Sweet and lucky antiques in Denver is not what you'd think. Inside is a room with its own weather system. Another space has a small lake under a cluster of stars. The giant warehouse is the site of the latest Denver Center production, Sweet and Lucky, and audience members are part of the performance. We're going to put this into context shortly with the New York Times chief theater critic. But first, a little bit more about this unusual show from CPR's Stephanie Wolf, who saw it. Hi, Steph. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I understand that when you first arrived, you were told to check any bags or purses. You needed your hands free for this theatrical experience. Why? That's right. I was glad to have my hands free. My friend and I were talking in the bar area before the show started and an actor walked in. He closed the curtains on all the door frames. He dimmed the lights really low. And then he handed me a shawl. 
and he passed out umbrellas. And I thought, that's strange. That's really strange. I'm at a theater show. Why do I have an umbrella? So as he started to lead us down this long hallway, I could hear rain in the next room. And sure enough, I stepped into that room and it was raining pretty heavily, actually. And as I looked above the canopy of open umbrellas, I saw a casket, and that's when I realized we were at a funeral. A funeral? What happened after that? The rain did eventually stop, and I closed my umbrellas, as did everybody else. We had these pieces of paper that were handed out. They had a song on them, actually. So a performer led us through song, and I'm not a very good singer. So I actually felt pretty awkward singing with strangers, but there were several people around me who were quite into it. And then shortly after that, I felt a hand on my shoulder and an actress actually led me away from my friend and back out into the hallway. And I didn't see my friend for the rest of the show. So don't expect to stay with your party if you attend Sweet and Lucky with friends. That's correct. Yeah, you'll potentially get separated. It's not a definite, but it could happen. Okay. So this actress, she was dressed like she had stepped out of the 1940s or something. And she turned on a recording of a female voice. The voice was really sad, and it was speaking to what I would have guessed was maybe her husband or her lover. I I wasn't quite sure. The mystery was starting then. And then another performer eventually led me into a different room where I was asked to sort through letters, and I eventually shredded those letters. And then I was led to another room and then another, and that's kind of how the whole thing went. I would break away from the group I was with. I would meet up with other people. I would sometimes meet up with the same people, and I could tell there were scenes unfolding in various rooms all around me with different actors and different groups. Wow, it's so labyrinthine. So each person, in essence, has a totally different experience from everyone else. That's certainly what it felt like. My friend and I talked after the show, and she saw rooms that I didn't even see, scenes that I didn't even see. And it was definitely labyrinth-like. It was actually a little disorienting at times, which made it feel like as if you were walking through this dream. And as I was going through the whole process, I felt like I was putting the pieces of the story together. And so are you essentially a character in the show if you attend Sweet and Lucky? That's the intention. I spoke with Zach Morris of Third Rail Projects. This is the Brooklyn-based company that the Denver Center commissioned to create Sweet and Lucky. Okay. And he said a goal for all Third Rail shows is to put the audience at the very center of the action. So performers spoke to me directly. They asked me questions. One sweet and lucky actress asked if I believe in luck. And if not luck, did I believe in fate? And it kind of felt like what my answer was would dictate where she led me next in this labyrinth of scenes. Uh, There was a point I played a card game with other people. I even was invited into the main character's home for a Christmas dinner. And as they sat (laughs) me down at the table, I thought they might actually serve me food. So all along, you're given these specific tasks and the actors guide you through this experience. So I felt very entrenched in the scene, but I, I wouldn't say in the end that I actually had a role in moving the plot line forward. Okay. It sounds like this could be an introvert's worst nightmare. I mean, if you were the kid who never raised your hand in school because you didn't want to be called on, um, you know, might this be an uncomfortable experience? It could, because you're asked to participate often, and sometimes that requires speaking. Um, I'm actually a former performer myself, and there were times where I felt a little awkward at times. And there are some people who were in, like, audience members who would mumble when they were spoken to. And then others spoke 
really boldly. So you can't be passive in this experience. But I would say I was never asked to do anything too outrageous. Okay. This is part of the Denver Center's efforts to reach out to millennial audiences, I understand. Millennial. We hear that word a lot these days. That's true. The DCPA got funding from a New York-based foundation called the Wallace Foundation. And the idea was that they would work on building its audience base. And with Denver's growing millennial population, the center decided that it would focus on that demographic specifically. When I went to Sweet and Lucky, though, you do have to be 21 or older to go to most of the shows. They have Mm. a few 18 or older shows because they have alcohol there. But I really saw a range of ages, not just millennials. Steph, thanks so much. Thank you. Stephanie Wolf, producer and reporter for Colorado Matters. We're going to zoom out now on this concept of immersive theater. That's the term of art here, because this is not actually a new concept. It's been going on in cities like New York and London for decades. New York Times chief theater critic Ben Brantley joins me. Ben, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I understand one of the first experiences you had with immersive theater was in New York's Meatpacking District. This was in the early 90s. You say you have... It was indeed when, yeah, when the Meatpacking District was a bit shadier and more open and generally more fun, I'd say. (laughs) You say you have vivid memories of that time. Will you describe that show for me, what it was? It was a a play, if that's the word for it, called Father's a Peculiar Man. I actually think it had a, a proper script. It was produced by a company called En Garde Arts that uh, specializes in what they called environmental theater. And basically you were, oh gosh, all sorts of things happened, sort of cued from the novel, but then translated into American terms. I remember at one point the Kennedys arriving in a convertible, that is Jackie and Jack, as on that day in Dallas there was a long groaning board of a uh, banquet table that took up more than than half the block. And I think we ended in a torture chamber where we watched individuals being whipped. And I think this was all supposed to be about the decline of family values in American civilization. But um, it was it was quite vivid. And it was also fun to see an area that you knew, a part of a city you knew, so transformed. I mean, we say all the world's a stage, and it's kind of great when it's put to practical use like that. Right, when it becomes literal. You know, talking about the torture chamber, it makes me think of hell houses, which are those Oh, kind yes, of-, of course. Yeah, no, and they've been, well, they've been going on for, what, 20 years now? Uh, there was a uh, a company here, an experimental company here called Frère Corbusier that recreated a hell house without irony, without winking. Uh, they actually bought the hell, hell house kit that you can, can order online and created the experience of going through an environment in which you see the chambers of hell reserved for people who may have abortions or be homosexual or uh, unpatriotic or whatever. Each It's sort of a Dante-esque version, but as seen from the American far right's perspective. That's right. These hell houses, uh, many of which actually are in Colorado, are often run by churches. Uh, You say for an interactive show to be most effective, it needs to do more than just break the fourth wall between performers and the audience. It needs to create an environment or a world you can, quote, fall into. What, What do you mean? Well, I, th- I think that's true. Uh, Third Rail, uh, which Stephanie was just talking about, have a long-running show in Brooklyn here called "Then She Fell," right? Which is about is it recreates Lewis Carroll's world and that of Alice in Wonderland, and that of course begins with Alice tumbling down a rabbit hole into. Uh, 
uh, an alternative universe. And I think we're fascinated, always have been, by the ideas of alternative universes. I mean, for me, going to the county fair when I was a kid in North Carolina sort of provided the same sensation. But you want a world that turns your world upside down to some extent that has its own own rules, own environment, as Stephanie was saying with this latest project that Third Rail has done. And um, I think you go to theater to be taken out of yourself to begin with. When you go to immersive theater, it becomes a physical process as well. Uh, when Steph talked about hearing that it, you know, like it raining on you in Sweet mm-hmm. and Lucky, I couldn't help but think of the comedian Gallagher who is famous for his sledgematic act. He would right. s- <laughs> smash watermelons and a variety of other produce that would rain on the audience. Right. We're going to start with the watermelon. Ah! <laughs> then we're going to go to the pineapple, which isn't as good. It's too, too hard. It's too hard. Yeah. You see this? Is there anything that's gimmicky about this or risks being gimmicky? Sure. I mean, it's a stunt to begin with, but I think, you know, theater in itself starts off as a stunt. Um, It's what's, I think, why it's so particularly appealing to people at this point is we're sort of at, you know, the apogee of of self-centeredness in our culture. Everyone likes to think he or she is the star of his own show and can (laughs) control the script to some extent. And... um, a lot of these uh, pieces let you do that. Even though you're not really in control, they give you the illusion that this is, this is all about you. It's, um, it's more than any other form of theater. It panders to the audience's individual sense of uniqueness, I think. And is that good for theater? Why not? I mean, anything that that transforms the world, I think, through art is 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 pretty exciting. For me, the uh, I mean, there, I've been in very sort of self contained uh, special environments like Punch Drunk. The London Company has a long running uh, variation on Macbeth, in which you walk through the haunted chambers of a hotel. Mm. But what I especially love is when you like as on as on guard arts did with the Dostoevsky thing when they take. When, you, when you're sent through the streets of a place you think you know, and this, this I've done in London as well as New York, and you're asked to look at it as if you were observing a play. Uh, there was something in London where I went through Camden with a headset, and I was told, you know, look over here, someone will be meeting you, and everyone you look at becomes a, a potential actor. So um, the, it turns theater as metaphor into theater as, as, as reality, as street reality. And uh, that, I think, is, is tremendously enriching. Earlier, we heard from Stephanie Wolf, our producer, that she didn't think her answers to questions that the actors posed really redirected the plot line. Have you seen shows where it, it, it's truly that the audience member is, you know, effectuating a change on the storyline? No, I don't think so. I think okay. it's all pretty much in place. The illusion is is that you are. And, of course, you are in the sense that with something like what Punch Drunk does, and I've seen several productions by them, you choose to follow one specific performer or one specific group of performers. So you're seeing a totally different narrative than someone else's. So to that extent, by pushing buttons, as it were, by turning left and or turning right, you are seeing a different story from anyone else. But you have to be game to do this, don't you? 
You do. I went to one uh, show in London called You, Me, Bum Bum Train, in which you really are the star of, of, of the show. You go in individually and you're thrust into different environments, like suddenly you'll find yourself being a politician fending off questions about your investment in BP oil, uh, or you'll be at the bottom of a garbage heap, or you'll be a singer in a bar. And you have to assume each of those roles as it goes along. Fortunately, in this case, it's only the actors, uh, that is, who become the audience in this case, who are looking at you. But uh, yes, you just hope there's uh, no one's uh, posting something on YouTube afterwards. We have just about 30 seconds, Ben. Um, Are lots of playwrights writing in this genre now? Well, I think a lot of companies are working in this genre. Uh, it's not so much a, a play per se uh, in many cases as, as creating an environment. And uh, it's, it's the equivalent of, of, of fun houses for, uh, for adults, uh, just a, a bit more sophisticated with a certain uh, cultural gloss. And at their best, they can truly take you out of yourself and take you out of a familiar world or turn a familiar world into something exotic. Lovely to speak with you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's Ben Brantley. He's chief theater critic for The New York Times. The Denver Center's Sweet and Lucky runs through June 25th. And we'd like to hear from you on this. Have you been to Sweet and Lucky? Do you plan to go? Share your experiences with us. You can email news at CPR.org. Again, news at CPR.org. Or tweet us at Colorado Matters. That's the program for today, with special thanks to John Zuko and Matt Hers. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. <laughs>